This morning, we are beginning a six-week sermon series on the doctrine of the church, which is also referred to as ecclesiology. Normally, we like to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Recently, we finished a sermon series going through a number of the Psalms. And Lord willing, in November, we are going to begin a sermon series going through the Gospel of Luke that will likely take over a year. So we look forward to digging in and going through the Gospel of Luke. But for the next six, actually seven weeks, we're going to be thinking about the church. And it is an interesting time to be doing a sermon series on the doctrine of the church for at least a couple of reasons. I've had the opportunity to talk with a number of pastors, um, experts in church history, theologians, including those whose expertise is in the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, and across the board, throughout all those conversations, I've heard a common theme. The common theme among them is that the doctrine of the church has been neglected amongst Christians and churches in America for at least the last 50 to 100 years. And what I've heard in those conversations reminds me of something written by Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He said, for far too long, the church has suffered for its lack of attention to ecclesiology. Well, how so? How has the church suffered for its lack of attention to ecclesiology? I'm sure there's a few ways we could think about that and could answer that question. But this last month, a book was published by Jim Davis and Michael Graham called The Great De-Churching. The Great De-Churching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? And what Jim Davis and Michael Graham, who are at a church in Orlando, observed was a number of people leaving, walking away from the church, a painful reality that they witnessed. But as they witnessed this painful reality of people leaving, walking away from the church, they wanted to get a sense of how widespread this problem is. And so they raised significant funds and commissioned an academic review board approved nationwide quantitative study to answer their questions about the de-churching phenomenon they observed. And so I just want to share with you a few, a few uh, thoughts that they shared in their book regarding what they found. They wrote, In the United States, we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. As tens of millions of formerly regular Christian worshipers nationwide have decided they no longer desire to attend church at all. These are what we now call the de-churched. About 40 million adults in America today used to go to church, but no longer do, which accounts for around 16% of our adult population. For the first time in the eight decades that Gallup has tracked American religious membership, more adults in the United States do not attend church than attend church. This is not a gradual shift. It is a jolting one. They go on to say, from 1870 to 1895, church attendance more than doubled from 13.5 million people to 32.7 million people as the general population grew from 38.6 million 
to 69.6 million people. The net result was a 12% increase in churchgoers. Because this growth happened in the short span of only 25 years, it became the largest religious shift in the history of our country until now. What we have witnessed in the last 25 years is a religious shift about 1.25 times larger, but going in the opposite direction. In that time, about 40 million people have stopped attending church. More people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and Billy Graham Crusades combined. Of course, with a shift that significant, with that many people leaving, there's going to be a number of reasons. There's going to be a number of causes. Some of them are, are painful and hard to hear. Moral fail, failures amongst leaders, hypocrisy, divisiveness amongst Christians, uh, even terrible cases of abuse and cover-up, and all these ought to grieve us and cause us to repent and to pray and to, and to seek the Lord. But what they found in this study is that there are millions of evangelical Christians who haven't had a terrible experience and continue to hold orthodox beliefs but simply don't go to church. While there are many reasons for the great de-churching, as they would call it, and there is no single silver bullet solution to the problem, I think we would be making a big mistake if we saw no connection between the neglect of the doctrine of the church over the last 50 to 100 years and the great de-churching over the last 25. Daniel K. Williams, who is a historian at Ashland University, wrote an article in Christianity Today in response to this book. And he said, most people who stopped attending evangelical churches in recent years are not nuns or ex-evangelicals. In fact, many still identify as born-again Christians with perfectly orthodox Christian beliefs, according to Jim Davis and Michael Graham's newly released The Great Dechurching. These Christians believe in the Trinity, the atonement, and the reality of Jesus as their personal Savior. They just don't go to church. It might be easy to imagine that the millions of de-churched individuals are an aberration whose evangelical identities are somehow suspect. Surely they don't really understand what the Christian faith is all about, we might think. But what if evangelicalism itself is partly to blame? What if the problem with de-churched evangelicals is not their faulty understanding of faith, but rather evangelical theology's own lack of emphasis on the church? He says, relative to other forms of Christianity, evangelicals have historically maintained a rather low view of the church compared to their high view of a believer's individual relationship with God. He went on, he went on, he went on to write, evangelicals are once again reading classic texts on the value of Christian community, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, and writing new books on the subject, such as Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman's Rediscovered Church. As going to church becomes more countercultural and less convenient in our frenetically paced world, these messages are more needed than ever. 
As Bonnie Christian explains, many believers lack a fundamental commitment to church, a conviction that routine participation in communal Christian life is the primary location of our worship and discipleship. But to get people to return to the pews, evangelicals need to rediscover a compelling theology of church to establish a uniquely evangelical answer to the question, why church? And he concludes his article by saying, early American evangelicalism may have been a reaction against unconverted ministers and spiritually dead churches, but it should never have become a movement against church itself. And now, and maybe now, amid a great de-churching, we can rediscover a robust evangelical theology of the church. If you're not a Christian, learning about the doctrine of the church might seem a little boring to you, and I get it, but my encouragement to you would be to press in, to press in during this time, and as we teach on the doctrine of the church, to look to the one who is at the center of the church, whom we refer to as the head of the church. Look to Jesus. Lord willing, through our teaching on the, the church, will exalt and call attention to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, look to Jesus. But if you are a Christian, then the doctrine of the church should not be boring to you at all. And learning about it should never get old. Why is that? Because the church is God's idea and his plan. And the church is important to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, he promised to build his church. In Acts 20, 28, we see that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. Moreover, in the New Testament, we see that the church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. Before his conversion, the apostle Paul persecuted the church, actively, aggressively, and violently. He spoke about this in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he said, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Of course, that all changed when he encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ as he was traveling to Damascus. But it's interesting to hear what Jesus said to him when he confronted Paul, who at that time was going by his Hebrew name Saul. When Jesus confronted him, we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, that he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice the language. He did not say, why are you persecuting my people? He did not say, why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Paul described his persecution of the church. Jesus described it in terms of persecuting me. Jesus identifies with the church. He is so bound up with the church, that to persecute the church is to persecute him. As followers of Jesus, what's important to him is important to us. Another reason we should care about the doctrine of the church is because for many of us, the great deep churching is not merely an alarming statistic. It's personal. 
people's names come to mind when we think about this. People whom we know and love, who care about, who used to go to church and have an active walk with Christ, but no longer do. And brothers and sisters, we want the Lord to use us in some small way to be a part of the solution. We want the Lord to work through us, to minister to others, to strengthen to others, to help others persevere in the faith. And I believe a biblical ecclesiology, a sound doctrine of the church, serves to clarify and confirm the gospel, make stronger disciples, and provide a more powerful witness to those who are not yet Christians. May the Lord use our study of his word, right understanding and right practices in regarding the church to this end. As I said, we're beginning study over the next seven weeks on the doctrine of the church. And today we'll begin our series by considering the nature of the church as both universal and local. To understand this, we first need to see that the Lord makes distinctions. So the first point is the Lord makes distinctions. The Lord distinguishes between in and out. We see this in the beginning of the scriptures, when God made man, male and female, in his image. He created Adam and Eve. He created a beautiful garden where they would live under his rule, enjoying his presence with them. They were in the Garden of Eden until they rebelled against him, until they rejected his rule over their lives. They disobeyed his good commands. And as God punished them, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. Whereas they were in the Garden of Eden, after they rebelled against God, they were out of the Garden of Eden. Many years later, the earth was full of people who were rebelling against the Lord, committing all kinds of immorality and wickedness and violence. And the Lord brought judgment on the earth. But he saved, in the midst of judgment, he brought salvation for Noah and his family. And God made a distinction when he brought judgment between those who were in the ark, which the Lord commanded Noah to build, and those who were outside the ark. Those who took refuge in the ark were saved, and those who were outside the ark experienced judgment. Many generations after that, the Lord's people, the Israelites, were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. But the Lord saw their affliction and heard their cry. He rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm by bringing judgment on Egypt through a series of devastating plagues. And when the Lord foretold of the tenth and final plague, which was the death of every firstborn in Egypt, he promised protection for Israel. In Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, we read, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In the midst of judgment, the Lord provided a way of salvation. And everyone who took refuge in their homes 
under the blood of the Passover lamb was saved, escaped the judgment that the Lord brought upon Egypt. When the Lord established his covenant with the people of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai, he set them apart from the surrounding pagan nations as his treasured possession. And as the covenant community of the one true living God, the Lord commanded them, be holy as I am holy. They were to be set apart and distinct in the world. They were not to live in the way that the pagan nations around them lived. They were not to live immoral lives rebelling against the one true and living God. The Lord sought to make a distinction between his people and those who were not his people. Those who were not his people could join themselves to the covenant community. We might think of Rahab in the story of Joshua when Joshua led the people of Israel in the conquest of Canaan, beginning in Jericho. She took refuge in and among God's people, the covenant community. Those who were in were preserved, but those who were not were judged. The Lord sought to make this distinction between his people and those who were not his people, and he promised to give his people this good land, the land of Canaan. And they were to live in the land set apart as his people. But he also warned them that if they did not live lives set apart and holy unto the Lord, he would remove them from the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 17 and 18, we read, But if your hearts turn away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land. You are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Sadly, God's people rejected God as their king, failing to worship him and him alone, failing to obey his good commands, failing to live holy lives under the Lord. And so what we see is that the Lord, in fact, did remove them from the land that he gave them. They were sent away into exile. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this pattern between in and out. And we also see this in the New Testament. During his ministry on earth, Jesus spoke about this clear distinction repeatedly in his ministry. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, Jesus told a parable of 10 virgins who were invited by a bridegroom to a wedding feast. When the bridegroom was delayed, they had to wait for a long time, five of whom were well prepared and had extra oil, but five did not. And so as the bridegroom was delayed and it was dark and their lamps went out, five had to go away to try to purchase more oil. And in Matthew chapter 25, verses 10 to 13, we read, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. A clear distinction between those who were in and those who were shut out. Later in Matthew 25, Jesus told another parable about the sheep and the goats. It was a parable speaking about the final judgment. 
the final judgment whereby God is going to distinguish between those who belong to him and those who do not. The sheep will be welcomed into his kingdom. The goats will be forever shut out. We also see a distinction being made in the epistles in regard to the church. The apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. And in chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that the church in Corinth had to deal with a serious sin issue in their midst. The sin being committed by a particular man was so egregious that Paul exhorted them to remove the man from the church. He told them that you must, you as the church, must remove him. And then in verses 12 to 13, he wrote, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. He made a distinction between those inside the church and those outside the church. And he encouraged the church that within the church, we need to render right judgments. In other words, we need to call sin, sin. We need to call sin, sin. If our brother or sister in Christ is in sin, we need to lovingly render a good and right judgment saying, brother, sister, this is sin. You need to repent. Paul distinguished between those inside and those outside. We see this distinction all the way to the end of Scripture. In Revelation 21, we are given a beautiful picture of the future for believers with a description of the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. In chapter 21, verses 22 through 27, we read, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. But its light will be the but its light, by its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So in the final analysis, in the final judgment, there will be a clear distinction between those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and those whose names are not. Those whose names are written in will enter. Those whose names are not will not enter. Mike McKinley writes, there are a number of ways we could characterize the story of the Bible. But one is to say that it is the story of God's wrath against his enemies and of his love for his people. Given the starkness of that contrast, God makes a clear line of distinction through this grand story between those who are his people and those who are not. The Bible traces this kind of membership from creation consummation. Now, I want to be honest and say that's not the easiest message to deliver. And maybe, if you're honest, you would say that's not the easiest message to hear. 
For some of us, the fact that God makes a clear line of distinction between those who are his people and those who are not makes us uncomfortable. Perhaps it doesn't sit well with us. And as hard as it is for us who are gathered here to sit under the preaching of the word, how much harder is it for the culture at large? This is not a popular message. It is a hard message. The Lord makes a distinction between those who are his people, whom he loves, and those who are not his people, who will face his wrath in the judgment. But what are we meant to do with a hard message of this nature? What are we meant to do? How are we to respond when Scripture confronts us with something that doesn't sit well with us? That's something that's hard to digest. Friend, I want to encourage you, the right response is to humble yourself. It's to apply Proverbs 3, 5, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Don't do it. Don't lean on your own understanding, rejecting God's word because... It's hard. We remind ourselves that God is good, that his word is good, and that it is good for us. If you are not a Christian, the clear distinction the Lord makes is a kindness to you. How could that be? How could it be that this distinction is a kindness to you if you are not a Christian. Well, imagine you have a deadly illness. Imagine you have a deadly illness, but there is a cure. There is a remedy. If you know you have this illness, you are going to avail yourself to this cure or to this remedy. But imagine that you have this illness, but you don't realize you have it. You are unaware that you have this illness. And because you don't understand this, because you are unaware, you don't avail yourself to the remedy that can cure you. You need to know where you stand with the Lord. You need to understand, if you're not a Christian, that you are not in. So that, by God's grace, you can go to the one who can save you. Clear distinctions are a kindness, even if you are presently outside. If you are a Christian, these distinctions help you to understand what is at stake and know how to relate to others. If someone is not a Christian, you need to understand they are out. And that should shape how you relate to that person, how you pray for that person, how you engage in conversation with that person. We should seek to apply Romans chapter 10, verse 1 in those relationships. The Apostle Paul had a heavy burden for his fellow Jews who did not believe in Christ. He said, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
clear lines of distinction help us know how to rightly relate to those who are outside. The hope is that through this sermon series, we will see the fact that the Lord distinguishes between those who are in and those who are out. We will see how this ought to shape our understanding of the gospel, conversion, and what it means to be a Christian. It ought to shape our understanding of the church, what it means to be a member of a local church, as well as our understanding of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It ought to shape our understanding of the mission of the church and how we call people to repent and believe in Christ. The Lord distinguishes between those who are in and those who are out, between those who belong to him and those who do not belong to him. The second thing we'll consider is the new covenant. In light of the fact that the Lord distinguishes between those who are his people and those who are not, the question then is, who are the Lord's people? Who is in? In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Lord sought to set apart his people Israel from all the surrounding pagan nations. Sadly, they rejected the Lord broke his covenant, and they were removed from the land the Lord gave them. But while the people of Israel were faithless and broke covenant, the Lord in his kindness promised to establish a new covenant. And we read about this in the book of Jeremiah. Here's what we read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. The Lord foretold of a new covenant. The question then is, what is new about the new covenant? And what we see in Jeremiah chapter 31 is that under the new covenant, the whole community knows the Lord. How is that new? Well, under the old covenant, the covenant community was a mixed people. It was a mixture of those who knew the Lord and those who did not know the Lord. It was a mixed community of believers and unbelievers, but not so with the new covenant. Under the new covenant, God promised to change human hearts, enabling people to respond to his love, turn from their sins, be fully forgiven, and joyfully serve him. So how would the Lord do this? Well, we find the answer to that question in the gospel of John. In John chapter 1, we read about the coming of Jesus Christ, the word the Word made flesh, who made his dwelling among us. Sadly, many of his own people 
rejected him. But listen to what we read in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those born of God who receive Jesus Christ receive the right to become children of God. Jesus expanded on this in a conversation with a Jewish religious leader, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, which we read about in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus said, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And he described this new birth as a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit who works, blows wherever he wills. Those who belong to the Lord are those who have been born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We refer to this as regeneration. Regeneration refers to the new birth. Again, it is the sovereign act of the Holy Spirit where he makes a person who is spiritually dead come alive. The work of the Holy Spirit to replace our sinful hearts with a new heart. This is a wonderful, glorious act of God. And those who are born again repent of their sin and turn to God, placing their faith in Jesus Christ. We call this conversion. Conversion refers to turning from one thing to another. Christian conversion involves turning away from sin and idolatry and turning toward God through Jesus Christ. Conversion is saying, I will no longer seek to be the king of my own life. I will no longer pursue a life of sin, but I will turn toward God in Jesus Christ. It's a 180, if, if you will, a complete turning, a reorienting of our lives. Regeneration and conversion go hand in hand. We are born again through the power of the Spirit who makes those of us who are spiritually dead come alive, causing us to turn away from our sin and turn toward Christ. Becoming a Christian is not merely adding Jesus to your life and then continuing on the way you were going. 
Becoming a Christian is the act of God giving us a completely new heart with new desires whereby we repent of one way and go a different way. One of the errors we want to avoid is thinking of becoming a Christian merely in terms of a decision of the human will. We don't want to think about becoming a Christian merely in terms of, I made this decision. I made this choice. Are we called to respond? Yes. Not denying that at all. But we need to understand becoming a Christian in terms of the sovereign act of God through the Holy Spirit making us new, causing us to repent and believe in Christ. We are called to respond. and We all are held accountable for how we respond. And what is the response that Christ commands? Repent and believe. Turn from a life of sin, idolatry, rejection. Believe in Christ, trusting in him wholeheartedly, following him as one of his disciples. And how does the Bible describe Christians? What's the primary way the Bible describes Christians? As those who are in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise the Lord. If you are not a Christian, we hope that you too will see your need for a Savior. You see, God is our creator. He is the one who made us. He is the one who made us in his image to know him, to enjoy him, to obey him, to glorify him. Yet every single one of us has rejected God as our king through our sin. All of us have gone our own way, turned our backs against him. And we're mistaken if we think our sins are akin to jaywalking. Our sins are akin to high treason. And every single one of us is guilty. Yet God, in his mercy and his kindness, has provided a way for us to be saved, to escape the judgment we deserve. And he did so at great cost to himself by providing God the Son, Jesus Christ, as the Savior of the world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. He lived a perfect life without sin. And then he went to the cross willingly. He died upon a cross to take the punishment in our place for our sins. He died. He was buried. But on the third day, Jesus rose physically, bodily from the grave. And he appeared to hundreds of people proving that he is alive. And after 40 days, he ascended into heaven where he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he has promised that he will come again to judge everyone. And our only hope at the time of the final judgment is found in Jesus Christ. 
Everyone who repents of their sins and takes refuge in Jesus Christ will escape the judgment we deserve and will be saved. Friend, if you're not a Christian, understand that you need a Savior. Repent of your sin, of living your life your way. Believe in Christ. Be saved. That is your hope. Well, in light of the need to be converted, to be born again, we are exhorted in Scripture to examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we read, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. We want to examine ourselves to discern the fruit of conversion. Well, what does that mean? Well, those who are born again through the power of the Holy Spirit are made a new creation. And God in his grace and his mercy and his kindness gives us new desires new affections. What should we look for as we examine ourselves? Love for God. Those who are made new love God. Love for others. Those who are made new love others. They love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said, this is how people will know that you are my followers, by the way you love one another. So love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Desire to see unbelievers come to know the Lord, just like we saw in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. My desire, my prayer for them is that they may be saved. A desire to obey Christ. Christ said, if you love me, you obey my commands. As we're given a new heart, have a desire to obey Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It doesn't mean we don't stumble. It doesn't mean we don't fall short. But we are given new desires and affections. And so we want to examine ourselves to see these things. The third point we'll consider is the universal and local church. We've seen that the Lord distinguishes between those who belong to him and those who do not. Under the new covenant, those who belong to the Lord are those who are born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus for their salvation. And in the New Testament, we also see that those who are born again and belong to the Lord are the church. In other words, the gospel creates a people. In 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the apostle Peter, uh, Peter wrote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those who have received mercy from God in Jesus Christ are formed into a people. There is a corporate dimension to our salvation. We are individually saved, but we are saved individually into a people. In the New Testament, we see that the people of God are the church. And the Greek word that is translated into the English word church is ekklesia, which means assembly. As in people 
with whom you assemble. And the word ecclesia is used in two ways. One way is what we refer to as the universal church. And the universal church includes every believer, past, present, and future, who belongs to Christ's new covenant and kingdom. And so we see it used in this way in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus promised, I will build my church. In that case, he was not referring to a specific local assembly. If it was, it'd be like, if you're in that local assembly, you got it made. Other other ones, it's like your minor leagues, right? Like, oh, I go to the church where Jesus is the pastor. Who's your pastor? No, he's talking about the universal church. All those who belong to him. Jesus will build his assembly. And his assembly includes every believer. To become a Christian is to become a member of the universal church. When we repent toward God and believe in the gospel, we join the universal church by God's grace. And we look forward to the day when the universal church will truly be the ecclesia or assembly of God's people united together as one body in Christ's presence on the new heaven and the new earth. In some sense, that already exists. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul's describing our salvation in Jesus Christ, he describes us as right now being seated with him in the heavenly places. We've already been raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. But we will fully and finally experience the reality of that, this assembly with Christ in the assembly, the heavenly assembly, at the end of this age. At the same time, most New Testament uses of the word ecclesia are not references to the universal church, but refer to specific local churches or local assemblies, just as we here are assembled together. So, for example, when Paul wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth, he addressed his letter to the church in Corinth, a specific group of believers who assembled together in that city. We know that because in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, he said, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, when you assemble as an assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. So he's using that word to describe a specific group of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who regularly gather, assemble together. Another example we see is when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians. What we see is that letter was written to a group of churches in a specific region. He addressed that letter to the churches in Galatia. He didn't refer to it as a single church because it was multiple assemblies meeting throughout the region. So what is the relationship then between the two? What is the relationship between the universal church and local churches? What we see in the New Testament is that the universal church, the heavenly assembly, shows up or is made visible on earth in local churches or local assemblies. Those who are joined 
could the universal church join specific local churches? This is what we see all throughout the New Testament. Jonathan Lehman writes, the New Testament word translated into English as church, ecclesia, means assembly. And the New Testament envisions two kinds of assemblies, one in heaven and many on earth. These two kinds are the universal and local church, respectively. To become a Christian is to become a member of the universal church, whereby God raises us up with Christ and seats us in the heavenly place. Yet membership in the heavenly assembly must show up on earth, which Christians do by gathering together in the name of Christ through the preaching of the gospel and mutually affirming one another as belonging to him through the ordinances. The heavenly universal church, in other words, creates earthly local churches, which in turn display the universal church. Every believer who has been born again and added to the universal church is meant to join a local church where they assemble regularly with a specific group of believers to whom they are committed and accountable. The Lord makes a distinction between insiders and outsiders. With the new covenant, insiders are those who are born again and know the Lord. The new covenant people are the church, which includes all believers and shows up on earth in local assemblies. Those who belong to the Lord, who are born again, who have repented of their sins and are believing in Jesus and who have been included in the universal church are meant to join themselves to a local church. Brothers and sisters, this is why we emphasize regenerate church membership. Maybe you've never heard that phrase, regenerate church membership. What do we mean by that? Well, regenerate refers to the new birth, the need to be born again. That's regeneration. And church membership, of course, refers to joining a specific local church. Those who join a local church are meant to be those who are born again. That might seem obvious to us, and that would be a good thing if that seems obvious to you. Unfortunately, that's not obvious to everyone. I recently was speaking with someone who recounted their experience at the church many years ago in Oregon. He told me how if you attended for three weeks in a row, you would receive a letter in the mail informing you that you were now a member of the church. And then you'd be asked to give money. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are reasons why people might want to join a church other than the fact that they've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. People may be motivated to join a church for self-righteous reasons. I'm a good moral person. This is what good moral people do. Therefore, I'm going to do this thing. But we want to lovingly point people to their need to be born again, to be saved, to repent and to believe. And therefore, we seek to uphold regenerate church membership, meaning those who become members ought to be Christians. You should not join a local church if you have not yet been added to the universal church. The universal church, those who are born again, are the ones who are meant to join a specific local church. So as we seek to do this, as we seek to be faithful in this, honoring Jesus who is the head of the church, I want to encourage you, if you are a member of this church, to pray to this end. Pray for conversions. Pray that the Lord will use us through the power of his spirit, 
through the preaching of the word, through the evangelistic and disciple-making efforts of every member to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ, to see their need to be born again. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that the Lord will use us to that end. I want to encourage you to pray regularly for conversions, believing that God saves sinners through the power of his Holy Spirit and uses ordinary people like us being faithful in the ordinary means of grace, such as praying and preaching and sharing the gospel and making disciples. This is how the Lord works to bring people in. And we want to be clear about in and out that those who are born again are the ones who are in, and those who are not are out, with the hope the Lord will use us to bring many people in. May the Lord use us to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the church, which is your idea, your plan. We pray that you would give us a deeper love for you, for your church, and a desire to see people brought in. Lord, we humbly ask you would use us to that end. We pray that we will be faithful to pray, to share the gospel, to make disciples, to call people to repent and to believe that they too may be saved. We pray for conversions. We humbly ask that of you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.